Thanks very much, Leanne. That was a very long reading at short notice. Well done. It's a great reading, isn't it? I noticed Leanne got a little bit of indigestion at one part where uh, they all got thrown into the lion's den and got eaten. Yeah, it's uh, very interesting. It's quite interesting uh, preparing sermons for church. Um, you sit at your desk, you pray and you read and you study and you get books and what have you. Then you prepare it and then you find some place and practice it. Practice it to a wall. Now that's what I do. Stand in the study and talk to the wall. And then you get to this point where you've got to stand in front of people and it's a little bit more daunting, but that's what you have to do. I'm Mike Croft. I'm one of the church's lay preachers. I was 19 when I became a Christian and I was working as a trainee carpenter. I was the youngest member of what was a fairly rough and ready crew and my conversion wasn't very well received. As a brand new Christian, however, I was well received and welcomed into the fellowship at St Paul's Oatley and met all sorts of people, but several men in particular stood out to me. These blokes were real gentlemen and spent considerable time with me answering my many questions about Jesus, God, the Bible and the world of work. There was something very attractive about their lives and I was later to understand that it was their faith working itself out as they lived day by day. The professionals, the minister, Lawrence Lovell, and the trainee minister, Ron Watts, were also great Christian men with a similar attractiveness to their faith but in my mind, they were paid to be like that. And I imagined that their job didn't have the challenges of working alongside unbelievers. So I looked up to Norman and Colin and I wanted to be just like them. It's like Matt said as we were reading through Philippians just recently. We should look to follow in the footsteps of... I'm distracted by the second slide on the screen, Bob. Okay. <laughs> ah. Oh, that's very helpful. I just learnt something new. <laughs> that screen's different to that one. Ah, where was I? To imitate, that was in the Philippians bit, wasn't it? To imitate them and walk according to their example. Doing that so, following somebody else and following Jesus, might not necessarily make for an easy life. There'll be times when being a Christian will be perceived to be in conflict with the values of the school, recreation or work environment. There may even be times when there's an actual conflict and you'll have to leave that environment. You'll recall the recent furor over the appointment of this man, Andrew Thorburn, as Essendon AFL's chief executive. He lasted one day because of a so-called shock link to his church. Not to a strip club, not to a gambling syndicate, not to a drug scandal. I think they'd barely have raised an eyebrow. No, this was a shock link to a church. Wasn't even a link to some sort of controversial social media posts like the whole Israel Folau business. No, this was the... 
the new CEO was forced out not because of anything he said or anything he did, but simply because he's linked to a mainstream Christian church which teaches the Bible. Would I have the courage and the faith to follow the example of Andrew Thorburn? When asked to choose between his job and his church, he gave up a salary which is thought to be about $850,000. Despite this, his response has been gracious, thoughtful, compassionate and intelligent. He said, However, today it became clear to me that my personal faith is not tolerated or permitted in the public square at least by some and perhaps by many. I was being required to compromise beyond a level that my conscience allowed. People should be able to hold different views on complex personal and moral matters and be able to live and work together even with those differences and always with respect. Behaviour is the key, he said. This is an all-important part of a tolerant and diverse society. He is a highly successful Christian man making an uncompromising stand in order to maintain his faith. Goodness. Sorry. Could I do the same? Could you? With God's help, yes, we can. This summer series is called Options for Craft and it's asking us to look with fresh eyes on some familiar Bible stories. We've just heard Daniel chapter 6, Daniel in the lion's den. This is more than just a story though. It is ancient history and it's ancient history of the very best kind because it's the history of one of God's people who would not compromise on his faith. We're going to look at the life of this man from the ancient past, a man who was in a very influential position and held on to his faith in God of the Bible. Will you let me pray? Dear God, we thank you that we have so many examples in the Bible and around us of you helping people of faith through various trials and temptations. Help us now to understand what you would say to us through the life of Daniel. The book of Daniel describes how a Jewish youth grew up to become a very successful public administrator in Babylon in the 6th century BC. Now much ink has been spilt, arguing about when and by whom Daniel was written. But the Bible does not question his historical position nor that Daniel was the principal author. In Hebrews 11:33 and 34, we read that he trusted God who stopped the mouths of lions and quenched the power of fire. And Jesus' description in Matthew 24:15 as the prophet Daniel. So let's look now at chapter 6. In 6 verse 1, We read that it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom and over them three presidents of whom Daniel was one to whom these satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. You can see from this map 
how large the area of the empire of Darius was in the 6th century BC. It's no wonder that he needs 120 satraps and three presidents. But we're a bit ahead of ourselves. Who is this Daniel? And how did he get to be president? A president. From chapter 1, verse 3, we read that Daniel was from the Jewish nobility, that as a youth he was without blemish, of good appearance and skilful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning and competent to stand in the king's palace. We learn too that he and his friends spent three years learning the literature, language and culture of the Chaldeans. But they continued to maintain their faith in the God of the Jews, the God of the Bible. After three years training and living on God's rations, they proved to be ten times more competent than any of their peers. Here's a question for you. How old do you think Daniel was when he was exiled to Babylon? Do you think he was 13 to 15? Put your hand up if you think he was 13 to 15. Uh huh. 16 to 18. Mm -hmm. 19 to 21. 22 to 25. No takers? Okay, that's good. Oh, come on, there you go. Well, actually, A is the likely answer. Daniel and his companions were probably 13 to 15 years old when they were taken to Babylon for re-education. According to Plato, the education of Persian youths began in their 14th year and it's reasonable to assume that the Babylonians commenced the training of young people at about the same age as the Persians. Daniel then would likely have been 14 or 15 years of age when he was taken into captivity and began his training. And I read in my research that they were also probably made into eunuchs as well. If you don't know what that is, ask your parent. Although that's, of course, not mentioned in the scriptures. So here's a second question for you. How old was Daniel when he was placed in the lion's den? 18 to 30? Mm -hmm. 31 to 50? 51 to 70? 71 to 90? Haven't got a clue. Ah, it's the stuff. See if I can illuminate you. I'm going to answer that question in a minute. But we really need to go right back to Daniel chapter 1. And you can see that it opens with these words. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The last verse of chapter 1 reads, And Daniel remained there in Babylon until the first year of King Cyrus. So chapter 1 tells you how long Daniel was in Babylon. These, first two, these two verses from the first chapter give us a time frame for the events Daniel records in this book from the earliest days of the Babylonian Empire through 70 years of Jewish exile to the beginning of Persian rule under Cyrus. Verse 1 places us near in time to Babylon's victory over Egypt 
at the Battle of Carchemish, a very famous battle in, the old, in ancient history, which occurred in 605 BC. It seems that immediately after this victory, as Nebuchadnezzar was returning from Babylon, you see Egypt to Babylon, what's he go past? Jerusalem. And he stopped on the outskirts of Jerusalem, which was the capital city of Judah. Judah, with King Jehoiakim, had decided to form an alliance with Egypt in this great war, which was lost, and so they found themselves on the losing side. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, threatened Jerusalem with a siege. King Jehoiakim capitulated. He gave up and he allowed Nebuchadnezzar to take articles from the temple of Yahweh and a handful of the finest young men in the kingdom back to Babylonia to become servants in his house in order to make his empire even greater than it was. Verse 1 places us in 605 BC. And verse 21 the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, is 540 BC, which is 650 years sorry, 65 years later. So Daniel was in exile for 65 years. And he is about 80 years old when his sleepover with the lions occurs. That's right. He's in his 80s. Any, any people over 80 in the room? We had several this morning. Anyone over 70 in the room? There you go. That's you in 10 years. Mm. Sid, you didn't put your hand up. I put your finger up. I won't mention Marilyn. Those Daniel was taken from his homeland as a very young man and spends three years being re-educated into the ways of the Babylon to be a public servant. After this intensive three years of training, Daniel and his friends become noted for two things. Their outstanding qualities as public servants and their faith in the God of the Hebrews. Somehow, during these intense three years, they were able to maintain their faith. We learn that Daniel served Nebuchadnezzar for 40 years. Then he served a few short-lived kings till Nabonus became king in 556. And Nabonus appointed his son Belshazzar as his co-regent in 553. Daniel then worked under Belshazzar until Cyrus the king of Persia took control in 539. Surprisingly, when Cyrus appoints Darius the Mede as viceroy in Babylon, Daniel serves him too. And so we come to chapter 6. You can open your Bibles again. Look at it with me. We've read that Darius divided his empire into 120 areas and put a satrap in charge to keep the peace and collect taxes. And administering their work were three presidents, one of whom was Daniel. But in verse 3 we read, Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other presidents and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Now you've got to remember that Daniel's in his 80s when this happens. So it's not really a surprise that there is a spirit of envy from the two other presidents and some of the satraps. Look at verse 4. 
Then the presidents and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. They realise that Daniel is a highly competent and honest senior public administrator and their only hope of, of getting him cut down to size or even eliminated will be in connection with his religion. How is it that they know this? In Daniel chapter 2, we read that when Daniel is 18, he and his friends ask for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery of the king's dreams. Daniel delivers the interpretation of that dream, even though it is a bad one for the king. Then in chapter 3, as a 34-year-old, his friend's uncompromising stance gets them thrown into the fiery furnace. They proclaim, Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us. And he does. He delivers them from the flames with none of them even smelling of smoke afterwards. In spite of all the attempts to turn them into Babylonians, the three men have maintained their faith in the one true God. In chapter 4, we read that the 58-year-old Daniel is unafraid to tell the king that the message in his dream is from God. Look at chapter 4, verse 24. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High which has come upon my lord the king. In chapter 5, the 80-year-old Daniel delivers God's judgment upon the vain and foolish Belshazzar just prior to the overthrow of Babylon by Cyrus, the king of Persia. God has numbered your days. That was the writing on the wall. You'd think that this statement would lead to punishment, but Belshazzar is such a fool that he rewards Daniel by making him his second in command. Now, you'd normally expect that the invaders would get rid of all of the leadership along with King Belshazzar, but no. God protects Daniel so that when Cyrus appoints Darius the Mede as his viceroy in Babylon, Darius appoints Daniel as one of his three presidents. It's during this time that Daniel, that God gives Daniel some extraordinary dreams and visions about the future. He records these in chapters 7 through 12. A very interesting read. Now it appears that these aren't random, spontaneous events, but rather they occur when Daniel is particularly focused on God. In chapter 9 we learn that Daniel knew the word of the Lord very well because he references Jeremiah's prophecy. Look at it there. I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. He also refers to other prophets and the law. In Daniel 9, chapter 6, he prays, We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes and our fathers and to all the people of the land. 
And then in 9.10, And have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. We know that up until he was deported to Babylon, Daniel was a noble child being educated to serve God's people. He was educated in the law, prophets and the wisdom, as well as other areas of public service in Israel. Not only that, we also know that on occasions he prayed and fasted. In chapter 10 verse 2 it says, In those days I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks, I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. He was mourning for the fate of God's temple and his holy city, Jerusalem. Daniel is a man who knows his scriptures, he knows his God, and he's a man of prayer. Back in chapter 6, the presidents and satraps who were unhappy with Daniel's forthcoming promotion set a trap to have Daniel thrown into the lion's den. Did you notice that Daniel is not present when they made their claim that all the presidents agree with this piece of binding law? And then when he becomes aware of the document, Daniel maintains his lifelong habit and goes home to pray. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper room open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he has done previously. He wasn't a parachute prayer. He had a previous practice of praying. He was persistently praying three times a day, not just when need arose. Daniel has lived a righteous and faithful life in senior leadership role in Babylon and has kept his religious practices in his home. He hasn't paraded his practices in front of others but done them in the privacy of his upper room. As Jesus says in Matthew 6, Beware of practising your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Daniel knows that his God sees what is done in secret. Jesus, when teaching us about the Lord's Prayer, tells us in Matthew 6, But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. In verse 11, the presidents and their crew spy on Daniel and catch him in prayer and so they bring him to Darius for sentencing. And then in verse 14, we read that Darius was much distressed that that he had to carry out his own law and he tried to figure out a way to rescue Daniel, but to no avail. So Daniel's cast into the den of lions. But the king... Recognising Daniel's faith declares to him, May your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you. And in a scene that is echoed 540 years later, the den is sealed with a stone and the king's own signet and that of the Lord's bringing the charge against Daniel. Darius has a sleepless night 
worrying about the fate of Daniel. Whilst he knows about Daniel's faith, he did not have any confidence in it. Look at verse 19. Then, at the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in tones of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. Didn't forget the correct address to the king, did he? O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths. And they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. God has saved Daniel. He's come to no harm, just like his friends in the fiery furnace. He's saved by his God, and this pleases Darius very much. Daniel's saved from the lions. And as per Persian justice, in true fashion, his sentence falls on his false accusers. They've been malicious in their accusation, and they and their families are eaten alive as a result. And this whole business causes Darius to write that great piece that was read earlier. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed and his dominion shall have no end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven on and earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. Nothing about trust, but lots about fear. Darius recognises that Daniel has served his God continually. And this God has miraculously delivered Daniel from the lions. Daniel's been a man of faith all his long life, a man who knows his law, prophets and wisdom. He was a man of devotion who prayed three times a day and who fasted and prayed on occasion. He didn't have a showy faith, but prayed in his own special upper room, away from prying eyes. Jesus was a bit like Daniel in this. After his baptism, he spent 40 days in the wilderness. And he often went to a quiet place to pray. As it says in Mark 1.35, Jesus departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And in Luke 9.18, now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. In the garden, he prayed so hard that he sweated blood. And he also frequently commanded people not to broadcast his miracles. Not a showman. Jesus also knew the scriptures so well that he constantly confounded the experts. He often said to them, Have you not read? And then he would explain their scriptures to them. Jesus' life was one that was full of grace and truth. As it says in John 1.14, And the word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
It is by trusting in this Jesus that we can have a faith like Daniel's. It's by belief in him as a resurrected son of God that we can become children of God just like Daniel. Like it says in John 1.12, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Are you a child of God? Does he rule your life? Have you received Jesus into your life? If the answer is no, then now is the time for you to change all that. There's a prayer for you on the screen. This prayer is for you to tell God you're sorry for trying to live independently of him. It's a chance for you to tell him you're sorry for not believing in Jesus and ask him to forgive you and make you one of his children. I'm going to pause for a minute so that folks who haven't done so yet can say that prayer. If you've just said that prayer, God has now made you his child and you've become a disciple of Jesus. Please tell someone about this before you leave today. And now... Each child of God must follow where he leads. His promise is to be my light, as he says in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Don't become distracted by anything else, but follow the advice of Hebrews 11, 13, 5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego went into the fiery furnace, not fearing what man wanted to do them, but trusting God for deliverance. Daniel went into the lion's den, knowing that he was blameless before God and that he had done no harm to the king. He trusted God too. Andrew Thorburn quit a high-paying job rather than compromise his faith in Jesus. How did they get this brave faith? Do you remember Jesus' promises to be in us a light of life? It won't be a surprise for you to learn that that light is provided by Jesus as we build our relationship with him through regular and consistent religious activities. We've seen this in Daniel's life, namely daily prayer and deliberate learning from the scriptures. We can also benefit from fellowship with other believers. We need to be like the New Testament Christians in Acts 2.42. We're meant to be devoted to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, the breaking of bread and the prayers. With our great God's help, we can all dare to be a Daniel. In conclusion, let me pray. Dear God, help us each to learn what the scriptures say. Help us to be like Daniel and to pray regularly. Help us to be content with what we have
For you said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Draw near to each of us so that we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. In Jesus' name, the people said, Amen. It's going to be a period for reflection. If you've got questions, uh, please come to me after the service and I'll endeavour to answer them.